When you think about applying for a practice loan, do you think about speed and simplicity? Likely not. For many veterinarians, applying for business loans can be a long and fatiguing process. Luckily, the sponsor of the podcast, Provide Inc., has changed all that. Provide is a specialty lender to the veterinary industry. They're the only, and I mean only, fully online and digital lender in the veterinary space, which makes life easy. You know I go on and on, and I'm so pro-practice ownership. I cannot be happier to have Provide be a sponsor. Whether you're in Maine or California, Provide can help. They aren't going to require you to open your savings account or jump through some hoops to get some sort of relationship discount on your loan. They're simply just going to say, here's our rate, this is the process, and we're going to do a good job. Provide uses innovative software and technology coupled with excellent service and an industry experience to deliver something that's just more efficient. Even on very complicated transactions, Provide can make a decision on whether they're going to lend in a mere five to seven business days. As we all know, time is money and having those answers quickly matters. Provide offers financing for practice acquisitions, buy-ins or buy-outs, commercial real estate, refinancing, practice remodels, all that stuff. Anything that you have around financing for your veterinary clinic and your business, they can help you with. So when you think about it, you can pre-qualify in minutes with no effect on your credit score. That's a benefit as well. For more information, head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see a hyperlink under the provide bio. That'll get you directly to where you can pre-qualify. You can do it on your couch. You can do it in 10 minutes or less. And if you do want to reach out directly to them, please let them know that I sent you. They'll take great care of you and they will be alongside you for one of the biggest purchases of your life and do a great job at it. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Today, I'm joined by Julie Squires, who is a certified compassion fatigue specialist, certified life coach, and a podcaster, which is something that I obviously love and want to chat on a little bit. So Julie has over 25 years of experience within the veterinary medical field. And you probably heard Dr. Jenny Rizzo in show 69 sing the praises of Julie. So naturally, had to get Julie on the show to chat. Julie, thanks for making some time today. Oh, Isaiah, it is my honor. I couldn't believe I did have to listen to that episode, of course, because Dr. Jenny Rizzo reached out to me and she said, hey, I mentioned you actually a whole bunch on this podcast. You have to listen. And my face was like so flushed the whole time. I'm like, oh, my gosh, who is she talking about? I'm like, whoever she's talking about, I love that person. Yeah, it's like they sound great. But yeah. it's the same way when you read someone's bio. And I always struggle with that. I'm like, I just say like, my name's Isaiah. I'm here. I'm going to talk about this stuff. Like, don't Right. I don't know. It just feels, right. I don't know. Some people get really particular about their bios. I am not that person. But anyways, I wanted to chat and get to know you a little bit and share your story, who you are, what you do with the audience, because I do think it's such an important topic. We've talked about it before, but everyone has, I think, their own angle to it. And I think your experience would be great to bring into it. I wanted to ask just initially. So I've talked to people that have transitioned from clinical practice and traditionally kind of the DVM into coaching, but you don't have a DVM and that's a good thing. So let's chat on how did you then get sucked into the world of veterinary medicine? Like, how does that happen? Well, you have a degree in zoology. So if you study animals in college and then you get out of college and you live in upstate New York and you say to yourself, hmm, okay, great. I have this bachelor's degree. What am I going to do with it? And how am I going to get paid? How am I going to make a living? How do I justify this thing that I studied where my dad told me to study computers and computer programming, which I was like, that's a no. So I'm so old, I replied to a newspaper ad to work in a veterinary hospital. And that started my whole trajectory. I started as a receptionist, became a veterinary assistant, 
many years in industry, pharma and diagnostic sales for the veterinary industry. I went and managed that practice. So it's been 25 years in the field, but of course, I'm not a veterinarian. Of those roles, which one did you enjoy the most? I would say when I really think about it now, what did I enjoy the most? I enjoyed them all because they all had something different to teach me. But the one I pine for the most, interestingly enough, is when I was a veterinary assistant. I just had such a desire to want to learn everything and anything I could. I had such a desire to want to be good at it because I didn't know anything going in. And I was thankful to work alongside of amazing veterinary technicians who taught me things. And I worked for an amazing veterinarian who was willing to teach me. And I was so willling to learn. And every day was exciting for me. It really was. It was hard, but it was exciting. It was emotionally tough. And I didn't know about compassion fatigue then. Didn't even know what it was. But I loved the species we got to work with. Every day was like, what is today going to hold? So quick look at the website and, and your business. One of the things that I saw and noticed that really stuck out to me is the term cost of caring. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe what it actually means? Yeah, I'd love to. The cost of caring essentially is compassion fatigue. So it is the price we pay to care for and help other beings. And I say beings, but I really shouldn't just say beings because compassion fatigue. So it's the impact that witnessing the pain and suffering of others has on us. So in other words, when we bear witness to others that are in some sort of distress, emotional, physical, psychological, mental, spiritual, even the impact that that has on us, that's the cost of caring, right? That is compassion fatigue. And when I said beings, then I was sort of correcting myself because we can also have compassion fatigue by witnessing ecosystems that are becoming extinct. Like say the rainforest, like conservationists, for instance, they're experiencing compassion fatigue about plant species that are becoming extinct. So yeah, so that really is in a nutshell, the cost of caring is what we are susceptible to when we put ourselves in the quote unquote line of fire in wanting to make an impact and make a difference in others' lives that are in some sort of distress. So when you think about trying to unpack that and A, I guess what are the steps of identifying that? And then how do you go from, okay, I realize I have that to trying to get and work through it? Is there some research around that? I just thinking like from a veterinarian side, like it's kind of like you diagnose and you treat. So like, how do you step through that? Yeah. Well, here's the conundrum about that is that, first of all, it's not a mental illness. It's a set of signs and symptoms. That's what compassion fatigue is. So it can look different in everyone. So we don't have a blueprint to say, okay, if X equals Y, then Z. So therefore, there is this fluidness, if you will, that, okay, we have to, first of all, have self-awareness. Like, what is happening for me? Am I aware of how I'm feeling on a daily basis? Am I aware of how I'm behaving? Am I aware of what I'm thinking? So there needs to be self-awareness. And then we have to be able to catch those places where we're not feeling the way we want to feel. We're not behaving the way we want to behave, whether that is sleeping too much, drinking too much, yelling at people, becoming irritable, showing up to work with a negative attitude. So it is catching that. And so awareness, of course, would be the first step. How one works through that is kind of an individual process, again, depending upon what are the shifts that they need to make. I can say 
with pretty much confidence that one of the first places to always start is around the idea of self-care. Like, how am I taking care of myself? What do I need mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and even socially? What do I need to do to take care of myself? How am I offsetting, again, the negative aspects of the work, compassion fatigue? And what am I doing to build up the positive aspects of the work is which we call compassion satisfaction. Where am I connecting to the joy in my life and in my work? Yeah, that's extremely helpful. And so Rekindle Solutions is your business. And when we chatted and got connected the first time, one of the conversations that we had is when you look out at veterinary medicine, especially the, I would say the younger veterinarians out there, the industry is certainly moving more towards a female doctor-driven profession. But you mentioned that you seem to attract mostly female clients. And I would think just from who listens to this podcast, from what I can tell, I can't tell everyone, but I think that's probably a lot of who listens to the podcast as well. But why do you think women seem to be drawn to your style of coaching? But also maybe perhaps the other question is, why don't men seek that out? And do you think that's an issue that is it just the way we're wired? Do we not want to look out and have these kind of conversations to identify issues? Or is there any difference, I guess, between genders and dealing with compassion fatigue and just like seeking out someone that would help with coaching. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That is That's a lot a, to unpack. I'm that's sorry. That's a loaded <laughs> question. Where do I begin? Well, I will begin with saying that I have had some male clients. I do occasionally coach dudes and I love coaching dudes, but I do think, and again, I could be wrong about this, but my perception is, and I might be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to be wrong at every day, but men seem to be able to compartmentalize a little bit better than women do. Like women, and again, I only know the world living with a female brain, but women, like, I can't just leave something. You started this conversation, I'll, a little backstory. You're just asking me about something good that's happening for me today or in my life. And I brought up something that wasn't good happening that I can't, like, in other words, I'm not able to leave that out of the conversation or leave that out of the office that I'm in right now. Like for women, our brains are very entwined. What's bothering us in our personal life, we bring to work and vice versa. And I'm not saying that men don't do that to some degree, but it seems as though men have a better ability to kind of keep things more centered, more confined in their mind and kind of move on to the next thing and then focus on that where we're like focusing on everything all of the time. I think my parents are the one that explained this, that my mom explained women are like spaghetti on a plate where everything touches each other. And a guy is more like an ice cube tray that has like the different components yeah. where you can pick up. And so I, just hearing you think that I'm like, oh man, I'm going back to a conversation when I was much, much younger around yeah. the dinner table with my parents. So sorry, <laughs> yeah. I had to throw that in there somewhere. No. Well, it's because somebody sent me recently, there's a great visual. It was like a Facebook meme or something like that. That was exactly that. The women's brain was like, just what you said, all the spaghetti. And the males was like, just these little boxes <laughs> that didn't touch each other and were far apart from each other. But I think the larger question or the larger aspect of this is that women are socialized very different than men. You know, I have two coaching certifications. I'm actually working on a feminist coaching certification right now. And what I'm learning is about the way women are socialized, which again is a huge topic in and of itself. But women are socialized such that First and foremost, we gain a lot of our value from what other people think about us. We get a lot of our value from what we do for others. We get a lot of our value from the external things in our lives. And because of that, there is this, 
what I call, I just did a podcast episode on this myself. There's this hustle for worthiness where we're always trying to, again, hustle for our own worth to like, am I good enough? Have I done enough? And it's a race that there is no finish line for. So what ends up happening is I think a lot of women just keep trying to chase their own self-worth and through all of these external things and doing more for clients, doing more for their patients, being a better employee, being a better doctor, being a better wife, being a better mother. And we never reach the goalpost. So it's this incessant race, which again, we're never able to win. So I can tell you in the last week, if I have heard it once, I've heard it 9 million times, clients coming to me, and this is what they say, I feel like I'm failing and I'm overwhelmed. And then the tears just start. Interesting to hear about that and think of just how people, or I guess how women are brought up and raised as well, and kind of the identity and being a male, like it's hard for me to be like, yeah, I know exactly <laughs> what you're saying. Like I can connect to that. I'm like, I don't really know because that's right. just not me. So I just don't have the and experience. you can't even argue with me either, yeah, Isaiah, right? I can't, it's I can't like, you're, you're like, wrong. Okay, if you say so. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I've seen, uh, we kicked this around a little bit when we chatted before we recorded also, was it seems like in veterinary medicine, one thing that I've noticed, it seems, is either a confidence or maybe this imposter syndrome coming in. Do you see that consistently? And I struggle to understand why, because so much knowledge is given to someone to get through vet school and it's so difficult and it's such an achievement. And then people still struggle with saying, am I good enough or do I know enough? And can I charge what I'm worth? I think that's one of the things I find interesting as well. Oh, yeah. Well, I do see the components of imposter syndrome. And most of my clients actually don't. Some of them will call it that. But really, what usually comes up is just a lack of self-confidence. And they have confidence. So there's a difference between confidence and self-confidence. Confidence comes from having done something. So yes, my clients, veterinarians, they have confidence in doing a dog spay because they've done it a million times. But self-confidence comes from not having done it before, but believing that whatever the task is or the challenges that you can figure it out. So it's not based on anything prior. It's based on belief in self. And what I find is that and this isn't just for veterinarians. This is just most people. We are blind to our own accomplishments. We don't even see our own knowledge because we're in it. Because our perspective is such coming from the, we only have the lens that we look through. We miss so much about ourselves and we forget that not everybody went to vet school or not everyone knows the things that we know about anatomy, physiology, pharmacology. And it's very easy to think that somebody else knows more or somehow we are lacking in that. And again, I see that more prevalent in women, but my sample size for the men clients would be small. <laughs> How do you work to build up the belief in oneself to be able to achieve the unknown of the scary things that aren't out there, but be like, yeah, you know, whatever comes yeah. my way, I'm extremely bright. I'm intelligent. Yeah. I can solve this. I have the skill set to get through this. How does someone figure that out? I know that's probably like a multi-trillion dollar question because if you had the secret code, that's what people, I think, look for a lot, right? Well, yeah, it's just a thought error in the first place. The thought error is that I don't know that I can't figure that out. So we first need to recognize that's just a thought error. I'm just having the thought, oh, I can't figure that out. And then what I try to do is ask them to talk about a time where they didn't know how to do something, but yet 
they figured it out. So then we start to work on belief of like, oh, well, here's an example of where I actually did do that. So if I could do it there, what's to say that I couldn't do it here? And we sort of kind of deconstruct and then kind of walk into what I need to think about myself in that situation to generate for myself belief that I can figure it out. You talked about the third aspect or credentialing around coaching that you're working towards. Can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about what you've learned or what you've seen thus far that might be interesting to those listening? Well, one of the most interesting things is that I'm actually learning about, and this is a new term to me, about intersectionality of where all different marginalized identities come together. So I would always have defined myself as a feminist in college. I did do some protests and took women's studies courses and marched for Take Back the Night. And if she says no, it's rape. And, you know, like was totally really felt empowered about that type of a cause in college. But I didn't have any of the awareness that I'm gaining now about, well, wait a minute, like white feminism is one thing, but then there's all of these social constructs that work against women who are, again, Black, Latino, lesbian, non-binary. Like we start to go into all of those other marginalized groups and it becomes a whole other kind of construct of things that I've never had to experience in my life. So as we're sort of teasing apart all of that and learning how there's different socializations for women based on those things as well as, so first we start with just you're a woman and then, oh, do we add on that you're black? Oh, do we add on that you're brown? Do we add on that you're also lesbian? Like all of that stuff, I had no idea of how that's all factoring into the equation as well and where people are unjustly treated in many cases and then their belief systems that they develop based on that. So, yeah, coming from the same situation that I had earlier where I was kind of like, I'm not a female, I've not experienced that. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you then, from a coaching perspective, help to identify and dig into that if you've not experienced or don't come from that same background? And again, everyone has experiences, even one Caucasian woman to the next white Caucasian. They're going to have their own experiences based on where they were born, who their parents were, all that stuff, too. Mm -hmm. But how do you approach those situations? It's just understanding of these are the challenges and then trying to just talk to that. Because I think that's a hard thing if you aren't familiar with the struggles that someone has to then approach it and say, I care, but I also don't want to say something or do something that is off-putting or is just out of line. Like if you don't know, you don't know, like the mm-hmm. kind of the ignorance aspect of that. So I don't know if there's a question wrapped up somewhere in there, mm-hmm. but trying to think through that to continue to improve, I guess. Well, I think the biggest part of what I heard in your question was for me as a coach, what I'm developing is, and here's the other thing though, I will tell you, and I've said this before, and this isn't my phrase, but this is the phrase, like veterinary medicine is becoming more diverse, but by and large as a profession is not very diverse at all. And it has been termed, I didn't create this term, it's been called the whitest profession in America. And What we can agree on is that there's not a lot of diversity in veterinary medicine. Is it changing? It is changing. But because there hasn't been a lot of representation of veterinary professionals that, again, looked different than white people, therefore, it hasn't been attracting BIPOC people at all. I mean, therefore, it's been a slow 
rise. So that being the case, why I was mentioning that is because I have not had a lot of non-white clients, but the ones that I have and the ones that I've coached, what I always have to keep in mind is I have to keep my own upbringing out of the conversation because the way someone else was raised with the belief systems that they were raised with, I have to be really compassionate and understanding of that they have grown up believing certain things because of their own experiences. And I have to make sure that I'm always able to hold space for what an individual's experience is that was not like mine. And be willing to be curious about that and be willing to ask questions and ask how those certain things have made them feel. I don't need to know all the answers because I don't know the answers for someone else, but I can be curious and I can ask them about how a certain experience made them feel and how they would want to feel and how they want to enact change and kind of go from that place. Got it. Yeah. Thanks for that. Slightly switching gears. So you still get coached today by other Mm -hmm professionals with a similar level of credentials and training. How does that help you? I think it's hard with something like coaching to explain kind of what the benefits of someone could get from that. It's hard because you can't really touch it or see it. You just kind of (laughs) internalize it and you can say, yeah, there was a difference when I talked to Julie, but Mm -hmm. how do you see it in your profession also in personal life as well? Yeah, I think it's the greatest gift to man and womankind to be quite honest, but I come from a long history of disorders, mental health issues, and mostly because I couldn't get out of my own way, mostly because I was so wrapped up in my own mental chatter that I didn't know the difference between thoughts and facts. And what I have learned is that, to me, the key to mental health, I talk a lot about creating mental health. Like, what is mental health? We're using the term all the time, but mental health is how do I create a psyche that is strong, that is resilient, that is able to handle challenges, that is able to get knocked over and bounce back. And I don't know a bigger influence on my mental health than the ability to get coached, to untangle my brain, to be able to have somebody give me undivided attention and show me my own brain and show me my own thinking and where my own thinking is getting me into trouble. And reflecting back to me what I'm believing that is, in most cases, not actually true. I just think it's true, (laughs) but it often isn't. We think our thoughts are all true, but the vast majority of our thoughts are not true. They're just opinions. They're a perception. They're observation. And that doesn't mean that they're true. And since that is what causes our emotions, our feelings come from what we think. It's really important to untangle the web of our mind. And again, for women... You said it yourself. Our mind is like a plate of spaghetti. So untangling that routinely, I can't think of a better thing to spend my time and money on and effort, to be quite honest. And the other thing I'll say, Isaiah, is we're living in a time where our time is limited and we're often distracted. We don't often give each other our undivided time and attention. And that is a rarity. And I think that it's one of the most important things we can do for ourselves in the 21st century is to find a place where we can get some mental health support, to have somebody listen to us, to have somebody give us their undivided time and attention and to help us achieve what we want, whether that's a feeling state, whether that's behaving differently, whether that's drinking less because I'm so stressed out because of the workload and my schedule and how many clients I'm seeing and patients I'm seeing. That's sort of where I go with that. You brought up the topic of drinking twice. 
do you see that as one of the common kind of ways to deal with some of the other things versus actually going through and untangling thoughts that are there in I would think that would just exacerbate the actual underlying issues more so than solving anything. Thoughts? Um, yeah. What have you seen? And candidly, I've not heard anyone else talk about that in the realm of veterinary medicine. So I'd love to kind of unpack that a little bit when we think about mental health and taking care of yourself. Yeah, I guess let's unpack that and tell me more about it. Mm, I'd love to. Here's the motivational triad. So human beings, we want to avoid pain seek pleasure, and our brain for sure wants to be efficient and therefore think the same thoughts over and over and over again. So because our brain wants to avoid pain and seek pleasure, we are all hardwired to want to escape our negative emotions, escape overwhelm, stress, frustration, anger, sadness, grief. Like it's our natural propensity to want to move away from that. So let's be honest, we've never lived in a world where it's been easier to escape our emotions because we can just keep busy all of the time. And many of my clients tell me, I can just keep working. I just keep busy all the time. I never have to feel my feelings. Or we can use alcohol or we can smoke weed or we can take drugs or we can shop or we can scroll our phones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or eat. I've done all of it. And I'm just somebody who never wanted to feel my feelings. So I developed eating disorders. I developed drug abuse. And for sure, I developed alcohol abuse. I was drinking a bottle plus of wine a night. And yeah, in the moment, I was able to escape what I was feeling. But like you said, the next morning, now I've got to deal with my self-loathing because now I can't believe that I did that when I said I wasn't going to do it again. And the cycle ensues. And alcohol, let's be honest, alcohol is legal. So look at our culture. Like you don't have to look very far. It's like wine Wednesdays and let's do Zoom happy hours. And like alcohol is very socially acceptable, but essentially most often it is a tool to buffer our emotions. It's a tool to not tool. I should put that in quotes. Not, I wouldn't call it a tool at all. It's a highly concentrated substance that, again, our brain really enjoys because it feels good. But yet, to your point, we don't solve any problems. What we do is we temporarily escape those negative emotions that we're feeling, but they don't go anywhere. We don't drink them away. They're still there waiting for us. And then the next day we have to now drink over the still those negative emotions. And then now on top of it, either the disappointment I feel in myself or the self-loathing I feel in myself because I kept telling myself I was only going to drink on Fridays or Saturdays. And this is one of those things that in veterinary medicine, I believe that probably the rates of alcohol abuse are much higher than any of us have any appreciation for. You have to ask people to self-report. There's fear in self-reporting. I don't want to jeopardize my license. I get that. But I think a lot of people abuse alcohol in vet med and in the world. Yeah. <laughs> well, honest. and candidly, I mean, my wife and I, we've not struggled with that. But even just over COVID and stuff, we couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. We're like, wow, we have drank far more than we did. And so we started catching ourselves like, yeah, this is not like <laughs> the strategy for what we should do throughout the week. And it's not like we're heavy drinkers by any means, but still like we noticed that. And I can imagine for someone that, Maybe that is a struggle for them having the confinement and not being able to go do other things to mm -hmm. go enjoy like that makes it very easy then to slip back into that because it's comfortable and it's still, again, alleviating some of the different stresses that were there on top of maybe work or other things. Now, when you're dealing with kind of this global pandemic thing that we had going on well, or have going on. 
the truth is it's a normal human brain that we're dealing with. So a normal human brain, when it gets a concentrated substance like alcohol, we get a huge dopamine release. So that then entrenches this urge, desire, reward system. Like that's a normal functioning brain. A normal functioning brain, when it gets a huge blast of dopamine says, ooh, that's important, I want more of it. So then after five o'clock or the end of the next day, an urge gets created. All of a sudden there's an urge. You feel the desire for, oh, some wine would be great right now. And then if you answer that urge, you've now reinforced this cycle. That is actually a normal functioning brain. We put so much shame around it, but that is a normal functioning brain. So it's just breaking that cycle to where you don't get the re-hit and the re-hit and the re-hit and just trying to wean yourself off of that and or just not succumb to that. That's super difficult though. Like the self-control to say, nope, I understand that that's what's happening. And then to say no, that's a lot of willpower. Yeah. And it's not willpower. That's the thing. We don't want to use willpower because willpower doesn't work. What we want to be able to do, the way out of that cycle is to not answer the urge. The urge will come up. An urge is a feeling. You'll have this feeling of desire. I want wine. And the answer is just to be able to sit with that and not answer it. Sit with it, which here's the cool thing. It's like any other feeling. It comes and it goes. It does go away if we don't answer it. But you're right. That's the hard part. I spent a whole lifetime of answering urges, either with food or drugs or alcohol. So I have had to unanswer hundreds of thousands of urges in my life. And some of them for many years, I didn't. What about exercise? So you think about Mm. like dopamine effects and working out. Yeah. Do you see that come into conversation? Do you think that's something that helps at all? Is that something that you talk about? Yeah, I think exercise, I don't know if it's so much a dopamine or it is more endorphins, but regardless, you're right. There is a chemical benefit to that for our brain. Oh, I talk about it all the time. I move my body every single day. Why? Because of my mental health, because I have to move my body in order to help kind of move through some of the energy, aka emotions, whether it's stress, anxiety. I have lots of anxiety. I'm a human that worries about things. And so, yeah, I think moving your body in a way that feels good to you every single day, whether it's as little as 20 minutes a day, the science behind that, as it relates to promoting neurogenesis in your brain, creating new neural pathways. Like there's tons of research for the benefits of exercise as it relates to the way we handle stress as well. So yeah, I'm all in, 100%. Yeah, thank you for that. Switching gears again, tell me a little bit about the podcast and then what's one thing that you've Mm. taken away or learned as you've done it? How long have you been podcasting? When did you start? I have been podcasting for 105 weeks. (laughs) That's the only way I know how to tell you. That's awesome. I I mean, we have to do the math of that. And I am so proud of myself. So the number one thing I've learned is that I can stick with something like an every week podcast. I'm proud of myself that I've stuck with it and that I have come up with what I hope to be valuable concepts and things to teach week after week. And I love when you, at first, when you called me a podcaster, I was like, when you did the intro, I was like, dang, I'm a podcaster. I'm like, I'm kind of cool, right? We're like in the podcast club. Trying. I'm trying to catch up (laughs) to you. That's way more than I have not been that consistent. I've not hit that mark yet. So yeah, it is a labor of love to try to put out a weekly show. Yeah. Totally is. What I love is the connection that I feel with thousands of people that 
I don't even know who they are that is listening. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like they're my best friend and I hope that they feel like I'm their best friend because when I am recording it, I feel like we're just sitting around having a conversation over coffee. Absolutely. So what's a soapbox topic that you feel like those within veterinary medicine maybe don't hear or don't understand well enough that you would like to get that message out? And I'm sure there's more than one, but is there one that's kind of the top of the stack? Oh, soapbox. Oh, boy. You know, I'm a New Yorker. I'm very opinionated. So I feel like I have lots of soapboxes. Isaiah, this is challenging. But I guess I would say that my soapbox topic would be, it's probably one of the main things, I guess, that I teach. And that would be that we are all worthy of our own time and attention. What I know about veterinarians and all veterinary professionals, they care so, so much about patients. They care so much about their clients, but yet they often don't mirror that same love, kindness, and care for themselves. And it hurts my heart how deeply compassionate they are, but yet sometimes just miss the mark of putting themselves into that same box. And if it's the one thing that I could leave this earth knowing is that I finally instilled in veterinary professionals that, you know what, none of this happens unless you become a priority in your life, that you put yourself at the top of your list and practice self-care like it is your most important, like it's as important as breathing. That's my soapbox for today. Uh, I like it. So one thing that I've started doing, which can go in a variety of different ways, but what's a question that you have for me? Mm. What's something that you'd like to know? Mm. I would like to know what feeling you feel most often. What emotion do you feel most often in your life currently? Ooh, I would say probably overwhelmed at times, candidly, like just trying to do a lot of things and do them well, because, you know, you don't want to do things in and half asset, right? Like you want to be known for something. And so I would say at times feeling stretched, even though so much of that is all brought on by myself because I want these things or I tell myself I want these things. And then it's just brought on from that. And I do, I'm very blessed and fortunate to get to do what I do. And I tell people that all the time and they ask like how you know, I am blessed and fortunate. I get to do a lot of interesting things. My days, I have a lot of control over what that looks like. And a lot of people don't. And it's trying to get to the point where starting something and building your own business. And now I do have a partner, but I was just chatting with my wife the other night, like we're going on year three of trying to build something that's not like if I, money was my goal, I would have made a lot more working for someone else than what I've been doing thus far. Right. So it's just like all this extra stuff. Who is it for? What is it for? Right. And so the overwhelming feeling, but at the other end of it, it's like, I'm young. I'm not trying to retire anytime soon. And I've always been the type that's building for the future. That's like a perpetual mindset for me or I'm not worried about today. I'll be fine, right? So I guess overwhelmed. And I don't know if that's the right term, but the other stuff, I guess, is how I feel. Yeah, no, well- what I love in what you said there is you're like, yeah, and I probably create it. Well, yeah, you do create it. We all create all of our own emotions, right? We sometimes think that, oh, no, it's my external circumstances. No, it isn't. It's your thought process that always creates all of your emotions, including overwhelm. So I love that you just kind of put yourself right in there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I love that question. I took it from another podcast. So it is called Swiping, which people that listen to the show will know, but it's Steal with Integrity and Pride. I learned that from the first mentor I had. He's like, hey, kid, if you see something that's good, 
you don't need to reinvent the world, right? Just take little bits and pieces. You can swipe stuff. I'm like, I like that. So mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting piece because I never know what's coming. Just like a lot mm-hmm. of times podcast guests don't know what the questions are. So it just is a free flow and you don't know what answers you're going to get. But this has been fantastic. We've talked about things that I've never talked about on this podcast when it comes to wellness. And I think that's important. Where do people find you, learn, connect, plug the podcast? Yeah. Where do people reach yeah. out? Best place to find me probably is my website is rekindlesolutions.com. My podcast is Rekindling. And I'm out there on social media. My Facebook is Rekindle. I don't love that whole aspect of, you know, but I'm out there. I'm on LinkedIn, Julie Squires. It's been a really awesome pleasure. And I'm, I'm excited you're coming on my podcast. So that's, I'll be there. that's going to be fun. You better be, you better be prepared. I'm going to give you some zingers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Isaiah. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincier Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.